Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview style podcast. These interviewed are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved like all of my guests are is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to past, present, and future legends, as well as business owners, employees, media, and land use warriors. Men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle we call off-road. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active in off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world that we live and love and call off-road. This episode of Conversations with Big Rich is brought to you by the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. The mission of the Hall of Fame is to educate and inspire present and future generations of the off-road community by celebrating the achievements of those who came before. We invite you to help fulfill the mission of the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. Join, partner, or donate today. Legends live at ormhoff.org. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Marty Fiolka. Marty is an accomplished writer, magazine editor, marketing professional, movie producer, off-road racer, and a 2014 inductee into the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. Marty, thank you very much for uh, agreeing to spend some time with us and uh, talk about your history. Uh, it's a pleasure, Rich, and, and I'm looking forward to, to this chat. I, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk about all things off-road racing and what we're involved with. Exactly. So, Let's uh, let's start at the very beginning, and uh, let's tell the listeners where you were born and raised. Okay, yeah, I was born actually in Toronto, Canada. My oh, okay. my my parents uh, were both. Uh, my dad was a German immigrant. And my mom was an Austrian immigrant, and they met there. And I was born there. And when I was very a year old, my father, mom, uh, took me cross country to uh, Los Angeles in a Porsche three fifty six with a little trailer on it, and. I moved to, we moved in, I was basically raised in Northern California, just south of San Francisco for my whole life and high, through high school. Okay. Just south of San Francisco. Now you're talking my neighborhood. I, I grew up in San Bruno, California. Where were you? Pacifica. Oh. So I grew up, I grew up oh. literally right over the hill from you. <laughs> yeah. I, my, um, I lived there for a number of years as well over in the Lindemar area. Yep. No, 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 well surfed there quite a bit when I was a teenager. So <laughs> that was my stomping grounds too. All right. That's awesome. So then going to, from Canada to California and the coast, um, like you said, you got into surfing that area that we're talking about Pacifica. It's, it's part of the metropolitan San Francisco Bay area, but it's, it's small, especially, you know, from our age, and when you got there, it was pretty small. What was it like growing up there? You know, it was before the time of, um, obviously, all the e-commerce, uh, the, the Silicon Valley. That wasn't there. And, uh, you know, it, I, I felt very fortunate to grow up in a, in a place where we were right on the coast. And you could go, you know, south and, you know, go to Santa Cruz. Um, there was some off-roading going on up there. Uh, there was surfing, obviously, going on. And, and, and San Francisco was just a pristine city to grow up. I, I can't imagine a, a better, you know, childhood. I, I, I really loved it. And um, and it was like I said, it was still it was still beautiful, and there were beautiful places to live. But it was it was not like it is today. Um, but you know, you can still go down from Pacifica, go through Half Moon Bay, past Mavericks, and 
you know, there's still a lot of that wonderful, you know, farmland and, and to the ocean all the way to Santa Cruz. But, uh, you know, it was about surfing and Volkswagens. That's what it was about. So exactly. That's, that's the culture I grew up in. So what, what year Volkswagen did you have? Uh, well, my, my dad actually worked for uh, Robert Bosch, for Bosch Sparkplug. So oh, wow. He, okay. So we were, so we were immediately ingrained in, in European cars. Uh, you know, my first race I went to was a 1971 Can-Am race at Laguna Seca. Um, which was, you know, kind of was the first real seed of, oh my God, motorsports is so cool. And I got to meet the drivers and he knew a lot of the Porsche guys. So I, I built, started building my first Baja bug when I was, I think 15. Uh, so I kicked to have in time to have a, you know, my, 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 my driver's permit and, you know, got into that part of it and, you know, started working for a guy who was racing in Vora and got exposed a little bit to the off-road races, had, you know, races up in Sacramento. And uh, my favorite was Virginia City when we raced up there and, you know, eventually got to drive a little bit, and, but then reverted back to, you know, building California look street cars too. I had one of those. So I was all about, you know, hands-on building stuff. And like I said the Volkswagen platform was awesome for somebody like me. Well, I'm surprised we never crossed paths. Um, you know, growing up in San Bruno, we spent a lot of time in Pacific and on the coast. I had a 54 Volkswagen street bug and uh, then after that, you know, after college, in fact, in the early 2000s, I owned Vora um, after Ed Robinson. Right. And, oh, yeah. And yep. ran that for four years. Yeah, it was a <laughs> it was an interesting time. I mean, because for then, I mean, I didn't really know much about um, anything s- south of, of where I was. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time with my family going down to Santa Barbara, but we never went to Baja. We never went to San Diego. We didn't go off-roading in that traditional family sense. I kind of did it on my own. And um, you know, but it was, it was a great hybrid and, and Vora was a kind of a great place to start, but obviously it was, it was not big time off-road racing. Cause a lot of the cars were older. Uh, you know, we were getting, we were getting all the cars that were being purchased from down South and bring them North and, you know, shoot, I was still racing. I think, uh, I was still racing with a guy who had a Funko Wampus Kitty racing still. So we were doing all that and high jumpers and those kind of cars. And it wasn't until later when I went to my first score race down at, in, at Mojave Desert when I saw the real cars and was like blown away by all of that too. Wow. Okay. So you went to Terra Nova High School then? I did. I did. Class of 1980. 1980. That's, that's where I was. Yep. And okay. so, uh, yeah, I went to, went to college of San Mateo for, for my for junior college. And then, uh, yeah, then I moved down to San Diego, had my cow look bug with a surfboard and Went moved down to be a DJ down in in, in San Diego and Pacific Beach and uh, yeah did worked at probably the first real night real truly nightclubs uh, there in San Diego that was right at the start of MTV so we were a fully digital nightclub with a huge satellite dish on the roof and you know taking video cameras on the beach on the weekends and it was it was a, it was a good time to be growing up and spent a couple a couple of years or a year in San Diego State and then moved up to Cal State Long Beach to finish my degree in broadcasting and marketing. Excellent. So mm-hmm. you you do have a degree in in marketing and broadcasting. Excellent. I do. Yeah, Bill. May, yeah, I it was was studying more TV production then, but the marketing thing was always kind of there. And uh, you know, and it, and it didn't necessarily translate right at first. I right out of college, I got offered a job at uh, at Bosch as a as a field rep, and um, you know, got a got a job following my dad's footsteps in a sense, and was basically going through the West Coast, going to you know. At that time, there were a lot of German repair facilities and European auto parts places. 
and, you know, making sure they had catalogs and taking care of warranties. And, you know, but then that evolved fairly quickly in 1988 uh, to a job at Bosch where I was moved back down to Southern California and was doing aftermarket or OEM aftermarket light projects for like Toyota, Nissan. Back in those days, like the Nissan, like like the four or the, the the pre-runners that they were building at the time had Bosch lights. So that was all dealer port installed options. And, you know, it was all with all the OEMs were doing it. So that eventually if somebody found out I was an off-road guy and I, I went to uh, literally the mint 400 with a backpack full of Bosch stickers and, and kind of met Bob Ritchie from the RCR plumbing team and Bob Gordon and a couple other guys say, Hey, look, run my, here's some lights, here's some, some decals, you know, you win some races and, you know, I'll get you some money. We'll come up, come up with some kind of contingency program. And that evolved very quickly to kind of managing the off-road program at Bosch. Uh, with When we created a program with Yokohama Tire and Toyota, where we had a five-car team. Uh, and we were, you know, we were sponsoring all the big truck teams because Bosch wanted to have OEM sales. So we were sponsoring Robbie Gordon, Jim Venable's team. We were on the, the Scoop Vessel Chevrolet program. Uh, we never, I think we were on the Rough Riders too sponsored Mickey Thompson series. And, you know, that was when I was really young. I mean, it was, I think it was only 25, 26 years old. And I was doing all that type of thing. That's pretty yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was great. I mean, I, I was, I was just enamored with, with that era. Um, you know, I was still, I've considered one of the golden eras of the sport, but you know, that's when, when the, all the factory class eights were there. Uh, and then I was, but I was still kind of a class one class two guy. I loved the Porsche powered, and the and the race codes and you know rode with Bob Ritchie a couple races rode with Bob Gordon a couple races and uh, just really enjoyed that era of, of off-road motorsports and you know it was big time and even you know sponsoring the Mickey Thompson series Bosch was there for a couple of years and you know really really enjoyed that that was really my kind of more of my wheelhouse. So so Bosch was really your first foray into the job-wise into the off-road market market. Yeah, it was. And I was, you know, like I said, it was just fortunate to, to, you know, basically be involved with all the best teams and all the best guys at the time. And, you know, honestly, the, the Yokohama Bosch Toyota team was the very first super team that the sport had. It was before the Rough Riders. And what we did is we took a car, a class one car, a class two car, a class 10 car, and then a 7S and a 7 4 by 4 And these were independent teams. And we put them all under one umbrella and ran that for a couple of years. And, I kind of brought Toyota and, and Yokohama together with Bosch and we kind of did it that way. And, you know, it was, it was, it was a successful program, the racetrack, maybe not. We won some races, but it was more as a marketing tool to see everybody together in tech or, you know, go down, you know, tech and contingency at the mint. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a big deal. Like I said, it lasted a couple of years and that was really, you know, where I started understanding, you know, more OEM, uh, the side of things and understanding you know, a little more marketing and, you know, starting to work with the media and the ESPN. And, you know, that's where kind of all that started. So running into Bosch and going down to that first Mint 400, were you familiar with those teams that you were trying to to work with? Or were you just like being a cold calling salesman <laughs> with a backpack and stickers? I, that's what I was. <laughs> Absolutely. I, was, I literally had like a, like I have a picture of myself next to the RCR car and you can see I've got like, you know, <laughs> have a boss shirt on and like some, some OP shorts and I'm, I'm sitting there with, you know, my center part of hair and a mustache and, you know, it, it, but that's how it started. And, and um, 
you know, I was fortunate. Uh, I think Bob Ritchie won the class or something. So there's a, there's a Dusty Times picture where you see him with a Bosch light on it. And that's what I sent back to Wolfgang Hustad, who was the head of Bosch Motorsports at the time. And uh, of all box motorsports, including IndyCar. And, uh, you know, it just kind of triggered something and we were eventually set up and, and, you know, we were, we were working with distributors and it just was a, it was kind of a booming market back then, but it was really all based on getting OEM aftermarket sales. And, you know, we were able to sponsor teams. I was sponsoring, I had, a, I had everybody pretty much I had, we had Nissan team, we had Weston and GMC. Um, so it was, we didn't have Toyota. We never got to, to Cal, but, but everybody else we did for a couple of years there and, you know, so I've made lifelong friends and people I still deal with today. Right. That's, that's pretty awesome. You having the, you know, I know that they, they said you and said, Hey, Hey kid, you know, take this backpack, you know, take these lights, take these uh, stickers and go, go get us some, some racers. And to just walking up into the pits and going, Hey, you know, I'm Marty and I want you to run our lights. That's kind of the way it went. Right. Yeah. And, you know, at the time I was also, look, I didn't just work for some random company. I mean, no, Bosch, Bosch was, is big. <laughs> Bosch is Bosch. So, you know, we were involved with, you know, and, and it was also lights and, and providing, you know, the racing spark plugs. All those guys had those expensive uh, silver plugs that were, were using the 911 motors at the time. And, you know, you needed 12 of those every time. So it, it was, they were, they were happy with it. And yeah, but I just was, I just automatically felt with certain teams I wanted the best guys. And I just kind of knew, I knew obviously Bob was, was something special and Bob Ritchie had the best looking car I thought of all. And, um, you know, we just were, were very fortunate and, and, you know, get, then I got to work a little bit more with Frank D'Angelo on the BF Goodrich side. And by 1989, I had, I had met one of my best friends walking to his glass shop and we decided we were going to go, go, go racing. So we bought a, a one, two, 1600 car and, uh, that we still have now we bought back for Nora and uh, you know, that's kind of where the, my racing side started for that. I, I was, uh, you know, it was just, it was all kind of coming together at the same time in my life. I had done some work for uh, Mitsubishi's chemical relations agency. I went to work for the largest peer agency in the United States at the time, kind of learned that craft with some media things and then parlayed that into a job. I was 30 at the time, so it was 1992, and I got a job at the Russell Racing School in Monterey, Laguna Seca, and I was a director of marketing and sales there. So I moved to Monterey and, and lived there for a couple of years, and that opened myself to a whole other group of of people. You know, we, we were working at the time with Al Unser and, and Rick and Roger Mears, and then Casey Mears was going through our school, so we, I kind of got exposed to all of that then, too. That's incredible. That's a, that's a hell of a ladder. Um, or, you know, a, a, I don't know what it, if you call it a ladder or not, but it's, more uh, horizontal. it's more of a, I have more of my life has been more maybe a slightly horizontal ladder. Right. <laughs> it has never, it never, never was really created to, uh, I just one of those people that it, it, where I just happened to find great experiences and work hard on products and it kind of led to other things. But, you, you know, I also learned rich that you have to, um, you know, you can't pigeonhole your, your skill set too much because, you know, I, I, I loved motorsports and I knew that was always the key, but I also was working, you know, with, with OEMs at the time and, you know, opening myself up to, to more things um, on the motorsport side, other than just the off-road side. I love that because I love doing it and I love racing in it and, you know, racing the score races we did there in 90, and eventually racing the Baja thousand in, in 92. Uh, you know, that was my passion but you know i always felt like if i was going to do this that i always in my heart felt like the credibility and that lasts all the way through my career now 
it's like I have to do it still. I, I can't just be outside of it. I I feel like I want to build cars. I want to go race. You know, we st- still do. And 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 that was we can talk about later. But the kind of the real secret sauce behind the dirt sports years too it was it was it was inclusion because we did it and right. understanding because we did it because we built it. And that was, you know, whenever you go into a, a circle of people, if you you know, I don't, I was like the best Rawford race in the world. No, successful reasonably, but you know, but it 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 brought me a lot of cred- credibility and also, you know, uh, stopped this itch that I had to go racing, which I still do. That's cool. I had an itch to go racing myself, and I kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, and now, I I think we're gonna, a friend and I are gonna try the Nora, but I don't. Uh, I told him when we when we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. I said, "Okay, if we do this, I want to do it for fun. I mean, if we if we do well, great. But I want to do it for fun. I don't want to go down there and just make it, you know, all about trying to get a win. And you know, it's uh, that's a that's a big change for me because I'm <laughs> yeah, like hyper competitive and and." It's one reason yep. I don't play board games or anything is because I'm hyper competitive. I'm a, I'm a poor loser and I'm a worse winner. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I'm, I'm that the same way. I, you know, we, 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 like I said, we raced and then, you know, all my teammates here in Long Beach, I mean, I still race with that same group. And, uh, you know, we, we were able to go by when Nora came about and, you know, that was in 2010. I, I fully, locked into that concept and I locked in the concept of the vintage side, obviously, you know, getting off of race cars out of shops because there's a reason to use them then. And that was, I thought super cool. I thought the format was super cool. And I had right by that time, and that was in 2010, I had already done 15 Baja 1000s and I don't know how many Baja 500s. I mean, you know, via wide open and all the other things I was involved with. But the Nora thing was just back to having fun again, because because when you're at a certain age and a certain, you know, we, we never kind of raised ourselves up to some high level of sponsorship or money. You know, the the pre-running and the, the race fuel and the overnights and the hotels and the concern about safety be, become kind of a overwhelming thought process. And you so the idea of, wait, we can go down and go race once a year for five days, get it out of our system show up with the best looking race cars we can that are prepped with all the good stuff that we can go be competitive and, you know, kind of build a team around that, which we have now, um, you know, that's where it all started. And there are a lot of people who've done it and now are doing the same thing. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful advent to the sport. I, I gotta tell you, Nora has saved a lot of people, uh, you know, their, their racing quote unquote careers or their hobbies and, and being able to allow people to do it again in, in a way that's really fun. It's fun seeing the vibe. It's fun. It's totally different than any other race you've been to. The vibe is fun. You know, it's a, like a rolling party. It's a rolling pre-run. But yeah, you're racing. But you know, you're you're, on, you're also taking pieces of history and bringing them out, like the big Ole Bronco last year. Or you know, a friend of mine's got two Porsche 911s that he's preparing and racing. So you know, sedans. I mean, it's all of that. So it's a really, really good experience. You're gonna enjoy it. Cool. Let's talk about that time frame or uh, that ladder. You, oh, okay. you were with you were with um, Bosch Yokohama, yep. and then what what happened after that? I mean, when did that transition? Did you go right into the the Ren um, Ren Sports? Yeah. So what happened was yeah. So I uh, what happened was is after the Russell Racing School, I, I I 
went back to an agency. Um, again, I was never really a, a, an agency employee. I didn't understand the pricing structures that they were charging. I didn't understand. I just didn't fit in the corporate. I mean, it took me a while to figure it out. I tried. Just never quite a fit in. I just was too uh, self-starting or just didn't understand endless meetings or 500 emails about something you can discuss in two minutes and get done. Right. So, I mean, it just, that's just kind of my MO. And I've now in my, my later years, I've kind of realized it and accepted it. It's like, you know, that's just not for me, but um, yeah. So I, I, I was fortunate enough though, to get an opportunity to uh, do public relations for Frank Hansowitz who ran Nissan Motorsports. And, you know, right away we were involved with um, sports car racing at the time the very end of the the 300 cx program uh 1995 with steve millen and johnny o'connell and of course that opened me up to just again a, a whole other group of people um you know high level you know we were winning sports car races at the time and you know going to places like daytona and, and, and sebring and all those places and then that program ended and then we transitioned into uh you know getting ready to to go indy car racing with irl so we through the Infinity Indy project. So I was there as a consultant, but I opened up kind of an agency under the. It was our, my racing was always Team Rent Sports. So uh, and then you know my agency was the Rent Sport Group. Rent Sports German for Motorsports, and just kind of worked for me. And uh, you know we still are under that same. You know the team is still on Team Rent Sport, and, and the agency still rent the Rent Sport Group. And um, so it was a virtual. I was always more virtual. One you know had a couple employees at one time, but mo- mostly just getting. Uh, you know, freelance people to come in, but um, yeah, but but it, during that time, you know, Nissan still was actively involved in, in short course racing with Art Schmidt, and I remember taking uh, taking the uh, the motorsports writer from Road and Track at the time, a guy named Andy Bornhoff, and I, uh, along with my photographer uh, Boyd Janes, and we went to uh, the, our first Cranon race. I think it was 1998. And we're just, again, blown away by that event. Just that whole, that's a whole other conversation. But it was, uh, yeah, so I, I always kept kind of my motorsports thing, off-road motorsports thing going, Rich. And that was, you know, weather was intended. I was still racing at the time, um, you know, and the, honestly, the IRL thing was awesome because it introduced me to IndyCar drivers. And I worked with a bunch of them, you know, Roberto Guerrero, Mike Roth, um, Lynn St. James, one of our drivers, you know, so we, again, these relationships I had. And then in 98, I had a chance to, through Pennzoil, to get a, a two-car team together for the Baja 1000 with Scott Steinberger. So we had a Pennzoil Class 12 car, and, a, and a, Scott had his pro truck, and I brought Mike Roth down for that. And, uh, you know, and he loved that experience so much that, you know, they started talking to his brother. And at that time, I also then was roommates with Todd Clement. And uh, Todd and I basically started wide open in, <laughs> in our townhouse. And eventually that led to those guys being part of the first, you know, wide open races in, in 2000. Cool. So I, that's the, the next thing on my list here of things I wanted to hit was the wide open Baja Adventures. Mm-hmm. So how did that, I mean, you guys were roommates. How did that all come about? Was it just a, had an epiphany? Uh, well, so yeah, basically there was, so at the time, unlike today with Raptors and side-by-sides, there was no easy portal to the sport. And I'm talking not, not, I'm not, I'm talking something that's not, you know, something like Moab with, with Jeeps and rock crawling. I'm talking about high performance, fast off-road racing in the desert. There was no way to experience that. And I had a, 
you know, an old Raceco one two sixteen hundred car was like my pre-runner and so did Todd. And we basically took a couple, I think Rich Minga had a car. Anyway, we basically took those and we decided to, we were just going to allow people to, to take them and do tours, do the guided tours in those cars. And we, you know, it was, it was a difficult thing to do because, you know, all the parts were different. And, you know, I had the idea of renting out cars for the Baja thousand. Um, you know, I had that for years and years because what we did at the Russell racing school is it was basically a ladder program and you could go racing with us. And it was like that, that, that made sense, but we can't do it here. So yeah, we started that like 1980, 19, sorry, 98, 99. And then Todd was smart enough early on to basically have uh, Bill Savage design the wide open Baja cars that were intended to be easily accessed. Uh, you know, they had a completely different tube structure that allowed them to be super, you know, reliable and put lots and lots and lots of miles on them. We had a, a, an immediate sponsorship with Bill Stein and with uh, Yokohama. And then we realized, you know, this is this is a great corporate tour program and people can finally come and do this. So, it was a, you know, we, we had a lot of public relations efforts through Men's Journal and just getting guys to come down and do this. And you know, it blossomed into what eventually grew. In fact, it, it all started here about a half a mile from my house on, on in San Juan Capistrano here in a, in a little a little office and a little barn. And, you know, at that time, Tommy Morris was working for us already. And, um, you know, we've had this great group of people that came together. And, boy, you know, we didn't, I never thought it would grow to what it did. And, you know, the very, like, so the first ride and drive event we had was, in, at, of all things, which you look back on now, like, what, what are you doing? But, it was like going to war at the time, but it was the Baja 2000. It was the first time we, we released cars. And, and at that time, I was also working with Sal Fish at SCORE to do the 40th anniversary, or no, the, the Baja 2000. We had the first time we had brought all the history together in a, like a press conference event at the Peterson Museum, which was in September of that year. And it turned out to be the biggest event that Peterson had ever had at that time. But it was bringing together all these old vintage cars nobody had seen before. Nobody, nobody ever gathered them in one place before. Like history was forgotten. But again, one of the things I learned from being in Indianapolis so much was that, you know, these these race facilities and these series all are going back to their history. They always go back to history. And off-road racing did that didn't do that at the time. There was no history that anybody could access, which is with was the motivation for writing the thousand miles to glory book too, which all started around the same time, right in 2000. But, uh, yeah, that first, that first 2000 mile trip, there's more stories about that. I, that I can included even hitting a bull in the middle of the night one night and with me and totaling a car and took four days or five days to get to Cabo. It was, yeah, I, I needed to be, I was in bed for two weeks after that was over. <laughs> It was, it was, it was a logistic. We didn't have the, we didn't have the, the infrastructure at the time. We didn't have the, the horsepower ranch as to base out of at that time. You know, we just didn't, we had, we had a lot of people do it. We had a lot of indie car guys come down and do it. And some journalists, it was great that right way. But, you know, eventually years later, when we, one year, I think why don't we had 18 cars in the Baja thousand and all, all 18 finished on time in, in La Paz. So by that time we had gotten kind of this, the system down much better. Yeah, it sounds like it. That's uh, that's quite an accomplishment to get eighteen cars. So you guys basically had the first spec class. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I, I look back on history, but we did, and it, but it was more it was more catered to people coming 
And we worked a lot. I mean, and Todd is really more responsible than I, but he was this dreamer who would come up with this crazy stuff. But, you know, the ranch was a great hospitality tool. And then when you went to the Baja Thousand, you know, we were flying guys into special places and setting up camps for them. It was a much more, it wasn't just come and race. It was like, we're going to do this in, in, in the right style. And, you know, we had a lot of, a, a lot of corporate guys, a lot of upper end businessmen just coming down and doing this. And, you know, this is, you know, we never really, unfortunately, graduated the system like we should have, which was always a concern. I was like, why are we getting all these great people into the wide open system and not having other race cars or trophy trucks or whatever eventually they could step up to? We, you know, but they, there was, we had, we exposed the sport to a lot of people and Baja we did. I mean, we, you know, it was a big tool. Eventually, BFG came in and, and really started using that tool for corporate hospitality training. And we were doing, amazing tire testing because we were going up and down the peninsula every week or two and putting, you know, a thousand miles on tires. So we were, we were an R and D arm for, for BF Goodrich as well. Very nice. I've not been to the horsepower ranch. Um, well, actually I was there to drop off a part and left, but it's, uh, it's one of the places I do want to visit. I, I did not realize that, uh, that kind of history. So that was you and, and Todd that, that got horsepower ranch going as well as a, yeah, as yeah. a well, base Todd, for you guys. Yeah. So it was great. Cause Todd, we, we, so when you first came to wide open Baja, you had to go, we, we had a, a little uh, shop, but it was in, in lower and Sonata. And I remember, you know, it was, it was this, it was next to like this stinky fish cannering place. And so, <laughs> so, you know, here you, you have a high end tour and you're picking people up at the airport in San Diego and bring him down. And that's the first thing they saw. I mean, we, 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 still, we were, we were staying at the time at Punta Mora, so it wasn't quite like that, but the experience, the first driving experience was in and out of traffic in Ensenada. It wasn't good. So Todd bless him, found this 140 acre ranch, you know, six miles out of Ensenada. That was really, really, it's a beautiful place. And, uh, you know, but again, we had to promote it as like an off-road cultural hub. So that in 2003, uh, we did our very first Baja Legacy Party, which was extension an extension of what I did in 2000. And we built our own Hall of Fame, quote unquote. And it was at the Baja 500 every year on the Thursday night. And eventually we had, I don't know, probably 800, 1,000, 1,200 people there. Live music, you know, again, history, uh, historic cars there. And it brought people to the ranch and we built out our cantina there. And, you know, now it's a, it's a fixture, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it, you, when you go like to Nor, you need to go and see it because it's, it's, it's a special place. Right. It's a, and, it's, it's, and it feels like you're in Baja. So even for our customers, we like at the top of the hills, it's down in a valley. We'd stop at the tour buses and say, okay, guys, your, your cell phones don't work after this hill, Just shut them off. And as soon as they got down the hill and we're in front of the cantina there in our courtyard, you know, the guys would be there with, with beers and shots of tequila and that's how the wide open experience started. And it, it would kind of was just a really a magical spot for that. That's, that's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's that, to have that, that drive and ability to put it all together and, you know, to create the wide open and then also, you know, the, the horsepower ranch on top of that is phenomenal. It's wow. Kudos. Um, Going into then 2003 is when they shot Dust to Glory. Yep. And yeah, that was, yes, it was. And you were um, an associate producer on Dust to Glory? I was. I was, yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine it was 20 years ago now, but uh, 
Yeah, I was. I got approached by, uh, I think it was kind of through Boy Janes. He had gotten to know Mouse McCoy a little bit and Scott Wall, who was the really the brains behind it, and Dana Brown. And, uh, you know, we I remember the, the first meeting they had at my house. I was living up in, crazy, I was living up in Brentwood at the time and, and commuting down to San Juan Capistrano every day. But um, we sat there and we decided, you know what? They, we, we talked about this, you know, with the, and they knew that they wanted to do this film. They wanted to make a cinematic film. But really, the inspiration was we sat around the table was what we want to make is our version of Endless Summer or On Any Sunday. We right. wanted something that was going to be just so powerful in storytelling and visual storytelling. And, you know, and in, in a way that, you know, Dana's father, Bruce had, Brown, had, had perfected with those two films. And Bruce was part of the, the group, too. And, um, you know, it's funny because I talked to Scott Wall the other day about potentially having a reunion in 2000 or 2025 and the 20th anniversary of the release. And, you know, we feel now that we absolutely 100 percent accomplished that. The film still carries weight, still, you know, it, it looks great and it, it moved people to want to come to Baja. And I still meet people all the time. I said that that movie makes me want to go, makes me want to go do Nora. I, you know, I was young and saw that film and it had, it had the same impact that Endless Summer and On Any Sunday did to me. Bruce's um, On Any Sunday was the first that was the first off-road movie I'd seen or first experience into off-road. Like I said, I was into bugs when I was a kid, but one of the guys um, from Bug Formance had, you know, turned me onto the movie and, you know, he was older. I was, you know, buying parts from him and stuff. And they, uh, you know, he had a, a, somehow he had it playing or showed it to me. I don't remember, showed it a couple of us. And I was like, oh man, I got to get down to, I got to go racing. Never did, but got into it, you know, through the rock crawling. 2003, we were down there. I was working for one of the BFG pits with uh, Jack Seipolt when Dust of Glory was being filmed. And we had one of the, a couple of the cameramen, or at least one of the cameramen in our BFG pit. And I was really hoping we were going to get a chance to be in the movie. And when the when the movie came out, finally came out, we got to see it. And I was like, "Damn, they didn't even show our pit." <laughs> but yeah, it was still it, we, it was still cool to be there. Yeah, it was you know it, compared to today. I mean, look, it was a it was a technical you know to go down and shoot a cinematic level film required. I mean, I think we had seventy five cameras because Baja is you know, the, the window is super short, and obviously we did pick up stuff later. You know, we did shots later. We to fill it in. Um, but no, but we were going in, the game plan was always about obviously mouse, uh, you know, on the solo deal, um, you know, following Johnny Campbell and then the McMillans were always part of that storyline, uh, which, you know, I kind of brought to the table. I brought at the time I brought the Mario Andretti storyline in too, because that the Groff class one car that's in there, the BFG Jimco was one that I raced with the Groffs the year before. And so I, I, you know, bringing Mario was one I, something I had worked on. The girls' storyline with Wide Open, Class 11 was something I worked on. So those are the kind of the storylines I had kind of brought together and worked on as well. Nice. Nice. And what was the hardest part from your point of view of getting that movie out? Uh, that's a good question, Rich. Uh, the hardest part was, you know, not quite understanding the Hollywood system at that time. Um, which I still don't quite understand. You know, there was there was a lot of, of there was money. Everybody put in a lot of effort. I put in 
you know, two or three years of work on it, not not full time, but you know, there was a lot of effort put in into creating what we did and then public publicizing what we did later. Uh, and but it was sold to a film company I own, I don't know, seven, five or seven percent of the film, never saw a dollar from it. You know, the guy who was filming the, the movie in Mexico and putting on a DVD and selling the street corner made more money than, than we all did. <laughs> um, but th- that wasn't it wasn't hard. I mean, again, so for me, knowing we were building something that was timeless and had quality and something that you could look at and be proud of overrides all of those things. And in the end of the day, how much did we move the needle in off-road racing? A lot. Because a lot of people saw it. And it, it turned, you know, it turned a lot of people on, not just to, to wide open, but all kinds of things that made people want to go to go off road or go off road in Baja or race the Baja Thousand. I think, you know, like Sal had an amazing run at it. Um, he owned part of it too, but his his upside was he was getting lots of racers coming from all over the world because of that film. And I think, you know, it, it, it was it hard. Yeah, there was some hard times, but overall, you look back and say, you know, it launched the career of. You know, Scott Waugh now, who's a, a major Hollywood director and producer and, you know, helped my career. It helped us all in some level. Right. And it, it, it really did. It's amazing. You can show that, that movie to somebody who has no idea what off-road racing is because, you know, what, I know it's hard to, to fathom, but you travel all over the country you see it, you go to, to places and they may know what short course racing is because they're in that town. Say like somebody that lives in Crandon or outside of, you know, Crandon, but you, you ask them what the Baja 1000 is and they may not have any clue. And with that movie, it brought that into people's homes, you know, or the, the possibility of them to actually see it, you know, beyond what was done with wide world of sports, you know, at times. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And, and you know, even a couple of years ago, I was doing an event, uh, a private event for Polaris at Crandon. It was more of a, a market research deal. And the main gentleman from Polaris, who's younger, had dinner with me. And, and all of a sudden, he starts talking about, I said, how did you get in this role with Polaris? He says, well, you know, I don't know, man, but I've been to racing. And I don't know if you ever saw it, but years ago, man, I was younger. I saw this movie called Dust of Glory, and I want to go to Baja. And it's like, he goes, do you know anything about that? I said, yeah, I, I do. And we finally found out I was involved with it, but he actually came down to Nora with us last year and was, you know, was, was, is going to probably come race uh, with us next year, I think in, in a razor. But, but again, you're sitting there going, this was, you know, this is, you know, 20 years after the film's released and it's still impacting people. You don't even understand. There's, there's so many people. So like I said, the, 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 the best of glory, what came out of the back end what was um, is a super proud moment in my career. It, it, it really is. Cause again, it's all about, it, it's not a one and done thing that, you know, you, you kind of do social media videos now and they're, they're kind of in and out. You don't, you know, there's no lasting value to them, but dust of glory has lasting value. And that's that I'm proud of that. Awesome. So then let's, uh, let's talk about your executive producer for Baja social club. And I've heard this mentioned and and but I've not seen much of it and I I don't know much about the project. Can you talk about it? Yeah, I mean it, it, if 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 Dust the Glory is, has the, the the pride upside, the Baja Social Club doesn't. Um, I you know we there was a, a line in the film Dust the Glory where Vic Wilson says, "If we made more history, we would have paid more attention." And I thought, you know what? He's right. 
and the, the thing that Dust Glory didn't do was really kind of sh- see how this all formed with these great colorful characters like Bruce Myers, you know, Malcolm Smith. And obviously when I had done the, all the work on the, 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 the Thousand Miles to Glory history book, I had, you know, immersed myself in off-road racing history and wrote the book. So I, you know, right around the time Nora started, I felt like I should try to do this project on my own. You know, came up with a name which I loved, uh, you know, but through a series of not so good things, it, it never really got made. The only real upside that and it still may get made. I, I have another potential to work with somebody to actually do it because um, we went out and shot a bunch of great Nora stories, including in 2014, it was Bruce Myers. Uh, I think it was the 50th anniversary of Myers Manx, I think. Yeah, I think it was. And anyway, he had never finished a race before. Like he had entered all these races, but never finished one. And we had built him a car in 2003 and never finished. And so I took that car, worked on it through a lot of contributions and help from a lot of people in the off-road industry and went down in 2014. And we actually finished a, a race in a Myers Manx with Bruce driving across the finish line. And that was that all that is, is stuff that's sitting in the can. But the bigger thing was when you mentioned wide over sports. Well, when I wrote my book, there's a picture of Jim McKay, who was, as you know, was the famous, you know, anchor at the time. And he's interviewing Bruce Myers. But that that interview is not in the cut that Bruce Brown gave to wide over sports. So as I got to know Bruce Brown, what better? I said, hey, um, you know, do you have outtake stuff? And he said, he said, hey, why don't you come up to the house? So I came up to the house in North of uh, Santa Barbara and in Bruce Brown fashion, he's sitting there smoking a cigarette in the house and says, yeah, let's go look. And so he opens up this massive closet and inside the closet are stacks and stacks of film canisters that are labeled on any Sunday, on any Sunday, on any Sunday, endless summer, endless summer. I mean, the archive is sitting there and right in the bottom corner, it says 68 Mexican 1000. So I looked, pulled the canisters out, and they were full of, you, know, you can always tell when the film was good. It, it didn't smell. It was like still fresh 16-millimeter film and audio tr- tracks. So I worked out a, a situation where I bought the rights to those, had, the, uh, you know, had them all you know, digitized, essentially, and I'm still sitting on that archive with stuff that nobody's ever seen before. And in fact, found the interview with Bruce Myers, and found the audio track with Bruce Myers and synced those up. And we even have a, nobody's ever seen it before. We're just kind of, my partner, James Masters, and I are just kind of waiting. So there may be an opportunity to finish that. But I just thought that that, that era, that counterculture, 1960s, you know, when everybody was kind of more involved with the hippie movement, then these guys are down in Baja doing their thing. And, you know, something that's still lasting. It's just, it's, it's, it's a fascinating history and it's fascinating people. And, you know, we have a lot of archive you know, content that, that we need to assemble, but it needs to be in the right format and seen by the right people. Just for putting something together doesn't interest me. It needs to be seen or, right. you know, that, that that's, you know, I can probably do a bunch of cool vignettes and post them on YouTube, but that's, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily structured that way. So we'll see. <laughs> I hope it gets made. Thank you. I hope it gets I hope made. So too. I and, hope so too. Uh, if it, if it's going to that point and uh, I'd love to help, push it forward. I think that's oh. uh, anything that we can do. I mean, I'm, I'm not an editor. I don't, you know, I'm not that kind of stuff, but I can, you know, got it. I got my hands in other parts of the off-road industry. So, you know, that's, well, uh, thank you. I mean, I think that the, the idea of what we all created, we had a great response to the trailers we posted. I mean, we did, and we, we tried to go back down in 2018, a second time and 
ran into some some rights issues that we couldn't quite fix in time. But um, I, I haven't given up on that. I, I, I tend not to ever give up on anything, um, which is probably my downfall. But I just, you know, I, it's still so good. And like I said, it's more by of how do you package this up to, to get it onto a, a, either, either a network. I mean, that's all the problem now is, you know, monetizing these projects. I mean, it, that's, that's the, the, you know, the nuts and bolts of it. But in certain cases, like in, on the, you know, the drive to survive on Netflix, I mean, it's paying off in big dividends, but you have to get to that point. So right. it, it's a chicken and egg problem. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, uh, let's discuss the book, um, Thousand Miles to Glory. Uh, that, that came out of being down there, working on that, the Baja 2000 in 2000. And yeah. the research that you did there was incredible. Well, yeah, that was, that was another one. Uh, yeah, I, I knew what I, what I wanted to do. I, I had gotten some support, as I always have. I've been a, with the BF Goodrich brand since I started racing in 1990. And, you know, we're still, you know, carrying the colors, but, you know, was able to talk to them about the most important piece, again, is monetizing it to some level. And I had a publisher interested in it and the best publisher at the time, David Will Publishing, has passed away now. But um, the idea of this Baja history book, uh, but luckily B.F. Goodrich, you know, bought, uh, I believe it was like a thousand or fifteen hundred copies up up front, or made a commitment to do that, so that we could go ahead and move forward with you know the the design and the and the and the uh, you know the printing and all the stuff. And you know it was a different time back then, but I was also fortunate enough to have done a project with Jim Ryan and had um, access to the Hot Rod archives, uh, which nobody had. And you know to go into that uh, the archive and find all that great black and white imagery, which was key on those early days i mean they had the best photographers down there shooting from like all the nor races from like 67 to 72 and it also some stardust 7-eleven some mint stuff but you know we had access to you know two and a quarter beautifully shot black and white film and that was really what got me excited that that got me excited and and then but then you know i went to sal fish and said okay well where's all your archives there wasn't any. there wasn't a place that had all of the you know, so the really the hardest part of the book was the back part of the book. We have all the the years, you know, the dates, the mileages, the winners, their names, the vehicles, the times. All that was really the was really what I started with, and then worked backwards from there to kind of understand. And I try to write it in a way, Rich, that had a, a storyline to every year. It wasn't just a, a dry, you know, blow by blow play. There was there was I was trying to bring in storylines certain times when you know, whether there's the McMillan story or Toyota, when, when certain things would happen and also give some backdrop to the off of motorsports scene or whatever was happening at the time. And, uh, you know, it, it was, a it was also, oh, I think it was mm, four years by time. It also got released in 2005. So no, it was five years. Almost. Took a long time. My publisher was angry at me because it took so long, but nothing like that existed. And, you know, nothing like that was in, was in writing. So, uh, you know, it was, it was a labor of love and, and, you know, look at it now and again, look at it. And for the most part, I would keep it pretty much the same as some things I would change, but it, it's, you know, it's sold out now. You can't find them anymore. And, um, but that was, that was also helped a lot into the role into, into obviously the dirt sports magazine. I mean, a lot of that research helped, you know, kind of craft that too. Right. And then on the book front, you're, di- you've also done the big blue M the history of McMillan racing. Is that correct? I did. Yes, I did. Um, was a basically a phone call, uh, 
you know, I had got kind of was between projects and, and Mark and Villain called me <laughs> from the beach in Cabo. You can imagine if you know Mark. Yeah. He's like, you know, I want to do a, a family history book and I need, can you find somebody for me? I said, well, why don't I do it? So that evolved into, uh, yeah, that was a massive one. That one took some brain cells for me. I think <laughs> when I found <laughs> was done, you know, 538 pages, or whatever that is. But, but it was amazing on one hand, because when I went to do the project, Mark, who's Mark, is, is absolutely like you know has all the family history and he had his his assistant at the time set aside and this is the great story like 328 manila envelopes that had all the different races and the dusty times from that race and the race notes and the pit notes were all organized wow so, so you're sitting there you're going this is awesome then you're going well this this isn't awesome this is this is going to be this is a lot to go through and you know, it was started originally about the same size of my my book in terms of length. But as soon as I got into it, it got way bigger and, you know, it took a while. And, um, you know, and Mark, you know, he's he's very task oriented. Sometimes the creative process is different, but we were able to, to kind of work through it. But I remember I got married and a year later I went on my honeymoon and I'm looking down. I'm, I'm trying hard to get this book finished so you can have a copy by Christmas. And I remember working for weeks and weeks all night long. And then finally, the day we're supposed to leave our honey, my wife and I are going to Whistler. And she looks down and she sees about 12 manila envelopes sitting there. She goes, oh, my God, you're not finished. I'm like, no. So she made me load up the manila envelopes in this horrible, like, um, Trader Joe's bag, <laughs> take it on the airport planes. And I literally set up a desk in our, in our, in our, where we were staying at the Whistler. And I worked about half my honeymoon. But yeah, we got it done. But that was that was I'm I'm proud of that project. It was never really intended to be something that people would, would like buy or read, except for the McMillans and their sponsors or their team people. But you know, it's it's not necessarily a reading book, but it is an insanely comprehensive you know reference book. That's for sure. Nice, nice. You know, it, you made mention about if we knew we were making history, we would have, you know, paid more attention. Yes, exactly. Um, I can say that I'm guilty of that with the rock crawling. I never, I never thought about it and did not keep really good records on, you know, who won events and that kind of stuff. I know that there's drivers out there that have been to all the events back in the day that have that information that the programs that we put out and all that kind of stuff at the time. And, uh, George Waitson, when you hear this, uh, know that I'm going to come for your, uh, your all your data that you have saved up and uh and i want to copy it all out but that's uh you know that that's uh it's important to have that stuff and and you know not having it i just kick myself yeah i mean you know it, you're right and and i'm actually working on a an off-road consulting project now and you know kind of dug started digging a bit through the dirt sports archives and I am fascinated by by all the stuff we actually did and but we all the history that we wrote and you know short course you know rock crawling desert and you know the interviews we did and stuff I mean it's really valuable to look back and if you're trying to look at history it's 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 a huge help absolutely so let's talk about dirt sports how did that, yeah. how did that all come about with uh, Ryan yeah, so I had I had helped. I was always, uh, you know, really bullish on the off-road racing space. And again, it's it's just one of those things that 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 I had in my heart. And I had worked with um, 
and with still work with Paul Fanner from Racer. Paul, you know, Racer Magazine was always this this crowning jewel publication. And, um, you know, we, we'd been friends since 1992 when I started at the Russell Racing School. I was the same year Paul started Racer. And I just thought, God, you know, we just, I'd love to have a magazine like that someday. Or this is what the sport needs is something that's definitive, that's colorful, that, that's technical. Cause it was all about, you know, it was kind of weaved in and out of like four wheeler and four wheel and off road. Well, that's, it was a different space. And I had worked with Jim on a couple of, uh, projects for, you know, inserts, motorsports inserts for four wheeler, for four wheeler. He was part of our project with the grass. We built a truck for, for that. And I, um, you know, when he started, wanted to kind of peel off and, and go to Vanstar with this concept that he had, uh, you know, if the conversation was, can, can there be enough content to do a monthly magazine? I'm like, yeah, a, a way more than, than we, you think. And so, you know, we, we kind of got together and, and kind of got part of that group. And, um, you know, I kind of took that over in terms of the, the, the marketing, but also the, the content in a lot of ways. And, you know, was just kind of was able to do what we needed to do and bring in, you know, Boy Janes to do the masterpiece in metal stuff. That was a direct takeoff of, of what Paul was doing in his in-studio stuff. And, um, you know, I think that was a was a key. But I think there was just a lot of activity at that time. And, you know, the, the founding of, you know, it was Dust of Glory was just coming out in 05. You know, that was all part of it and, and the book. And then you know, champ or the championship off-road series was, was blooming and score was, you know, this is before 2008. So there was all kinds of activity. And if you look back, you know, and like I said, rock crawling was, was, you know, on board too with, you know, the U-Rock guys. And it was just at a very high level. And we just felt like we had, we had an amazing amount of creativity and space, um, probably overcommitted a lot of ways because I was way too perfectionist. And, um, but we also were, you know, we weren't just doing, we weren't just writing about it. We were doing it. We were building project cars. We were doing big tech pieces. You know, we were racing at the time and some, and some, at some races with our cars that we built and pre runners. And that takes a lot, but it was, I think that again, I think it really moved, moved the needle at that time. Agreed. Agreed. And, uh, I hated to see the downfall of it. Yeah, me too. I, you know, I, I, I have, you know, I have some regrets on how it kind of all ended, but I will say that, you know, I, I saw the end of kind of this, the monthly thing coming, uh, the newsstand thing. Uh, I wanted to go a different direction with it to make it more of a, you know, a, something that came out once in a while that was printed on better paper that was more subscription based because, you know, some of the photography shot was amazing, but the, the magazine printing didn't show that necessarily. Right. I mean, it's coffee table book photography level stuff especially when you're dealing with guys like boyd and jason zendrowski later on and brian bank those guys all kind of evolved out of that um but yeah i it was a shame you know it was a shame and then it kind of got watered down now the brand got watered down and we were so protective of whatever we built whatever we wrote about had to be the best that we could afford to do and you know there i guess it's out there somewhere now but 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 like i said you look back on it and you can look back on those issues and be like man there's some great stuff here great great stuff and out of all those issues and all those stories, what's the one that you're the most proud of? Can you pinpoint one? Uh, yeah. In fact, a couple of them. One was a story that, that I talked about yesterday at, at, uh, at a memorial service I did for Robbie Pierce. And it was a story that when he started trophy truck racing, he was involved with a guy named Bill Barnes. And I remember the story that I did about the old guys going off-road racing. 
I thought in the way they were, I thought that story is one of our best. Um, I remember a couple issues, the, the Baja thousand commemorative one that had, that was the biggest one we ever did. The rebranding when I, we, you know, issue that we did in the end, which was the, the 40th anniversary of the Cranus cover. But the one, the, the biggest story I do remember is covering kind of the death and the trial of Mike Goodwin with, uh, with Mickey Thompson. That one was more of journalistic. And then I, I unfortunately I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he was a, he was a famous stuntman that bought uh, a Rolls Royce that was at the, all the off-road races. And, um, you know, he, he committed suicide and, and I was the only one who really wrote about that. Um, it was a sad story to write, but uh, there, you know, there's some areas of that that are very, you know, kind of more digging down even deeper. And I think those got the kind of the highlight stories for me. Right. And, uh, let's talk about Bruce Myers and the Myers Manx, um, a little more detail on that and how that relationship um, I, I'm assuming that came through Bosch. No, you know, it didn't. Um, okay. I, I, my, my dad had a, we had an old uh, Myers Manx knockoff when I was a kid. So I first start, started driving when I was nine years old and it was a fiberglass dune buggy. But at that time in Pacific, you could go up in the hills anytime you wanted. Right. So we were going, we were going up there and that obviously struck a chord with me, but um, no, I, I really met Bruce Myers really in 2000 right when I was doing the event at the Peterson, I wanted old red there. And, uh, I got to know he and Winnie. And then right after that, you know, was when he started, he kind of was reestablishing his business and he invented and, and launched the, uh, the Myers Mangster, which was a fiberglass dune buggy on a full size pan. I helped him launch that with, with some media stuff that I was working on for him just as a favor. And, you know, that evolved to, well, Bruce, I need a body. Let me build what I always envisioned, which I went and, and had a, a fabricator at the time help me put a lift kit on it. And all the Myers Manx were really small. I'm six one, so they, I never fit in one really. So they, 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 uh, so we did that. And Bruce came by and said, oh man, look at this. Let me, let me put that lift kit into the, uh, the fiberglass and we'll come out with a dual sport. And so I built, he built the first one. I built the second one, which I still have. And, uh, you know, our relationship just evolved to, to over that time. And, you know, then we built the, the, uh, the Baja race car based on our BFG team with the Groffs and we, you know, got together and built him a car so he could race again. And it just evolved from there. And, you know, we, we, we were, we were close friends for, for many years. Um, you know, I brought him down to the 2000 with, with the Myers, with his original Myers Manx and, you know, he, he chased the whole race with it. So we did a lot of interactive things like that. Um, just was a Bruce Myers fan and, you know, loved his, loved his, his whole beach Volkswagen lifestyle, you know, surfing thing that his whole, his whole life story is a whole other part of the world. But, you know, to bring him down um, with Vic Wilson and, and, and at the Nor race in, in 2020, 2013 was a super big part of what I wanted to do. And then in 14, going back down and having him finish a race, you know, that was, that was awesome. And then we, like I said, we had been friends and were friends for a long time until he died, unfortunately. Right. And you mentioned that you still have that, that Myers Manx. Um, do you, I got to ask how many cars do you own right now? <laughs> well, uh, let's see in the, in the direct family here, my wife and I, we own three and then I have partial owner with my, my teammates of five, uh, five more, uh, off-road cars, race cars. Okay. 
So I just, yeah, I just, so we have the cars we race at Dora and then I just bought uh, a vintage short course car that, that won Cranion world championships. Uh, that was an Art Schmidt car because we're going to be vintage racing at Cranion here soon in June. Nice. So I wanted to, I wanted to have the car. It was a turnkey car, really cool. looks cool. Rabbit motor in it. I mean, it's cool. And I was just, it was a turnkey. I can just get this and keep it there. So whenever I'm back in Cranion, I want to burn some laps. I can just do it. But yeah, but the Myers Manx is, is a, was a special car. Um, it was, it's everybody's kind of favorite. It's because it, of whatever it's just bright yellow and it looks right. We spent a lot of time building it and it's been in magazines. everywhere as a cover car for hot VWs. And it's just kind of our signature car. My wife and I have taken long trips with it through California and it's just a great car. It's that, that one we're going to keep forever. That's good. That one's not going to be sold ever. Awesome. Awesome. So besides that car, what's the car you wish you had? Oh. Still, it's oh, I, I, it goes down to two. I I wish I had the so in two thousand and two when we got the BF Goodrich Toyota program together with the Groffs and we built the, a Jimco Jimco Class One car with a Toyota Camry V six motor and single motor Bob Gordon had, and you know with a five speed Fortin that car in terms of balance in terms of you know 300 and whatever horsepower was just enough right before you got to the big 500 600 horsepower cars that car was the most fun race car I ever drove by far and but the car i wish i probably still wish i had uh, during the dirt sports days i built a um uh an alumacraft four-seater with a chevy big chevy motor in it and a five-speed big five-speed that car was a a hot rod it was a porsche and everything you wanted in an off-road car it was comfortable as fast as hell and it was just a fun car to have. It, it, but it ended up with being so high end for me that it kind of owned me. Every time I took it out, I was worried if I heard a bang in the gearbox that I'd lost the gearbox well, or an axle. And those things were, <laughs> you know, it, it took away some of the fun from it. <laughs> so it's, it was just like, this car is owning me. I don't really own it. Like the Manx, I don't worry about it. I, I can fix anything or buy anything. So, uh, you know, it's, it's still out. That car is still out there somewhere. But yeah, those are those are the two cars I wish, and certainly the the, the Jimco was by far my favorite race car that I ever had. Excellent. Was involved in. Excellent. Mm-hmm. And when when you look back on on what you've done up to this date, what is the one thing that you're probably the most proud of? Uh, I, you I know, know you you have this list is incredibly long, and you know you should be proud of everything, but there's got to be one thing that just goes, yeah, this is this is it. This is what, what I was, this is why I was put on earth to do. You know, I, I, I th- honestly, um, I, I think I'm living it right now. I think, uh, you know, being the promoter of Crandon and taking that wonderful facility and its long history and really kind of polishing a diamond over the last eight years to where it is now, um, you know, working with the Flannery family, being in the Midwest, uh, you know, seeing what we've created in terms of this motorsports icon now and this cultural thing, I, I honestly, I think that I'm proud of because it's also kind of just the vision I had for it. And I, you know, the, the Flannery's basically let me just do what I thought I should do. And they believed in, in what we were doing and investing in it. And the racers did and Red Bull did and Polaris did. And I think as a, as a culture, as a career defining, like, well, I'm going to be proud of that. I think Crandon is at the very top. Uh, I also think the other thing, Rich, I think just exposing so many people to what we do and, you know, whether it's IndyCar guys or just 
guys in the street through the wide open program are coming racing with us. I think that I'm really proud of that. And then honestly, the, 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 the single singular moment, no doubt was getting inducted to the off-road motorsports hall of fame. I, you know, somebody submitted a, a thing, a proposal for me. Uh, I didn't really expect it. Um, and I certainly didn't expect to feel like I did that night. I mean, you know, I, I said that night, I wish I was being inducted as a racer and not necessarily as a promoter, but it still resonates a lot. Every time I think about the Hall of Fame, I, I think about, you know, we're working with the Hall of Fame at Cranon to do, you know, we announced an annex there. We're going to build a museum there for short course. Uh, you know, all that work we're doing with them is, is fantastic, but it really is thinking that after all these years, you know, like I said, I wasn't Walker Evans. I wasn't you know, Ivan Stewart, I wasn't Robbie, I wasn't any of these famous drivers or even necessarily corporate people, but whatever I did, you know, whatever contribution I made was, was recognized that way. And, and that was, I still, still resonates when I think about the fact that every time I go to the, the Ormhoff dinner, uh, I'm just super proud to be part of that exclusive, you know, fraternity there that, 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 you know, did so much for this whole lifestyle and sport. Yeah, I'm I'm a real big fan of Ormhoff, um, the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. I've uh, I've been going to them since the induction dinner, the first one that they did at uh, when it was at Pomona, and we've gone every year since then. I don't remember what year that was, but it you know it's it's something that's I think it's great that that everybody gets together and celebrate the the history of the off-road motorsports and i think that everybody that's involved in any any aspect of off-road motorsports whether it's motorcycles or rally um, rock crawling desert racing short course racing i mean there's so many different things that that i think everybody that's an enthusiast or a racer you may never get to that that place you know, you may never be inducted, but I think it's something that everybody should be involved with as a member or as a, um, you know, going going and, and honoring those inductees, the people that came before and have truly advanced our sport in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that these people, uh, you know, have devoted their lives to this, you know, and and. Robbie Pierce, you know, said, you know, outside of friends and family, the thing that defines us the most is what we do in this in this lifestyle or in this sport. It's the one thing we will always think about, you know, go, if we, you know, if if the, if the end of the end of your life was tomorrow, you'd think about life, friends and family, and then you'd think about all that you did, you know, in off road racing or off road. It, it's that powerful, and it's it matters, as Robbie said. And I yes. think, you know, and I think you, you have to look back on people who've sacrificed and, you know, volunteered or, you know, given on so much of themselves to this, to, to perpetuate this, you know, this crazy drug that we were all addicted to. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's important and it's important to have a, a focal point for the whole industry and for the whole movement, as it were, because, you know, it, it also justifies it to to people like at ford and to people like you know there's a hall of fame of, of this is a legitimate thing and you know they've done a, a tremendous job i remember going to my first hall of fame dinners and they were in reno and there were 40 people there and it was like wow this is just you know and then when we finally convinced them to kind of bring it to pomona's off-road expo which was part of the dance star at that time 
that's when I really started seeing a lot more pickup. And you had the industry there that could go and support it. And clearly bringing it to Las Vegas as part of the Seamer show is really added to it. And it's, it, they've done a, just a, you know, a tremendous job with it. They're, they're wonderful people, but they, they're really advancing things, and it's, it's really great to see. I agree wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. So anybody listening, get involved with the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. If you know somebody that you feel that, that deserves the recognition, you know, get them, you know, fill out the, the proposal to get them inducted. Um, it's not easy. It's not an easy, easy thing to do to become inducted, but it's, uh, you know, the people that are, that are out there and in are, are justifiably in, and there's plenty more that, that, that eventually will be in. So, um, get involved, please. So the last thing, what would be your life motto? You know, my life motto really gets down to I, I really think that, you you know, it's it's almost going back to the Mark McMillan motto, the McMillan motto of, you know, never, ever give up. You know, this life is complicated and you have to have a lot of patience and you have to, you know, kind of never give up on relationships you have with people. People you meet now are people you're going to be doing business with potentially in 5, 10, 15 years when the time is right. It's all about patience and timing, but, you know, I just feel like even to my detriment sometimes and my poor wife's detriment, you know, I just don't give up. You, you, you start something, you got to finish it. And it really goes back to what I think about this whole industry, Rich. If you got, if anybody ever wants to understand how this life really works, go get a book called Cowboy Ethics and read about the code of the West and how you ride for the brand and you just never give up. And I just think that that, that my philosophy is based on that. And I think the, long-term beauty of this whole thing that we love so much is based on kind of some old-fashioned values and that's one of them and i i, I that's how i my, i kind of live my life now is based on those things and you know it, it seems a little old-fashioned but you know what it actually still seems to work so that's what i can offer for that awesome i think that's uh that's a good segue for Great. uh saying thank you very much well, thank you, Rich. It's been it's been nice to sit here and have a, a, a nice conversation, bring up some great old memories, and talk about the past. And and like I said, I think you, you're doing a great job with the show, and I'm I'm looking forward to hearing it and hearing a lot more a lot more stories from other people. Excellent. And uh, again, thank you. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on. Or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message and let me know uh, any ideas that you have or if there's anybody that you have that you would think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.